Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and today we have a real treat. We have Victor DeSanto and his husky, Mountie, who is sitting quietly by his side, being stroked by his, her, her, it's a her, right? Yes. By, by her owner, and just looking like the most well-behaved dog. So you might expect the topic today is going to be Victor and his dog team. And we found out about this, and I'll just get the information right up there right away, um, because in just a few days, on Saturday, February 16th, Vic is going to be at the Old Stone Fort Museum with his dog team to talk about the history of sled dogs. He's a historian as well as a musher, and we're just getting a little preview today. So welcome, Vic. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're here. I'd just like to start a little bit hearing about you and how you got into this. Um, I, I did a little research online and saw a video you had made about yourself, and I understand you first ran into sled dogs when you were in the Army. Is that right? I first saw sled dogs when I was, when I was in the Army. I was stationed out in Colorado, and... Um, there were sled dogs out there, sled dog races, but that was 20 years before I ever owned my first northern breed type dog. I grew up in a family that had always had beagles for rabbit hunting, but um, the way I got into it is in 1993, I had a back operation, and um, it was really the worst year of my life. I was on workman's comp, and I was used to, you know, bicycling and being active, lifting weights. I had been a wrestler and a football player in high school and always worked out afterwards, had been in the Army. Um, and, you know, I got to the point where I really couldn't even, it would take me hours to get dressed. So while I was in the hospital, um, after my operation, a volunteer from the uh, one of the Humane Societies came around and they had a uh, therapy dog, and the dog lifted my spirits. And she passed out some literature that said that thousands of, of dogs and, and cats get euthanized every year by animal shelters because they're really unwanted. They can't uh, be rehomed. They're really breeding them faster than people can adopt them. So uh, I decided, you know, once my back healed I was going to adopt my first dog um, I was working on my doctoral dissertation at the time so it took me about a year to wrap that up but well, just, let's just take a little side trip and hear about <laughs> okay. that now you have a PhD in American history right yes. and mm -hmm. what was the dissertation on it was on uh, a labor history it was on uh, streetcar workers of Albany during the progressive era and their union from 1920 to 1921 so what you mentioned that you couldn't work with this horrible back injury. What kind of work did you or do you do? Oh, I was a historic preservation program analyst for the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation. That sounds like interesting years. work. Yes, yeah. and before that I worked at the State Museum and Visitor uh, Services and Interpretation, Museum Education. 
Oh, I volunteer there now. I, I can I say back. you kind of come full circle <laughs> because you go educating people with your dogs as well. Yes. Okay, well, I got you off the track. So you decided after this terrible back injury that you would adopt a dog. And tell us about the dog you adopted. Okay, three days after <clears throat> I graduated with my Ph.D. in May 1994 from uh, SUNY Binghamton, I um, walked into the Mohawk Hudson Animal Shelter, and there was a Samoyed, which is also a breed of dog from Siberia. They're often white. They're sometimes white and biscuit. They have a, a longer coat than Mountie does, you know, than a Siberian does frequently. And um, there was a dog there. She had a very nice temperament. Her uh, owner turned her in basically because... He didn't keep her in a fenced-in area, and she kept wandering off uh, the, you know, premises, and he would spend a lot of time tracking her down. So I uh, adopted her, and her name was Snowball. The shelter actually named her. They told me that was her name, but I think they named her because she really didn't know her name when I when I first adopted her. And did you keep the name Snowball? Yeah, I kept it. Because they kind of look like a big snowball? Sort of. Yeah. You know, it wasn't my first pick, but it was okay. So did you start then with the sledding, or was it just a pet? That's at the she, was, she was a pet um, pretty much. She was already four years old. I did have an old toboggan, and I bought a harness, and, you know, I had her pull my uh, my nieces around a little bit, but... Now, is that something a dog like that just takes too naturally once you put her in a harness, or is it something you have to train her what to do? They pretty much take to it like ducks to water. Um, generally, the hard thing is, as you add dogs, is keeping them untangled and getting work as a team and getting to go in the right direction but the pulling comes pretty naturally about a year after i got snowball she seemed a little lonely so i uh, i bought a alaskan malamute pup which is a little bigger than a siberian uh husky or a samiid and he was a heavy duty puller he was a real pulling dog you know so and what was his name thunder Thunder. Yes. <laughs> That's good. So he, he was a real pulling dog. Uh, he had a personality similar to Mounties where he was really friendly and outgoing. And did the two dogs get along, Snowball and Thunder? Yeah, she, they got along, I mean, um, pretty much. They were, kind of, uh, they were kept together, and they never fought. I think Thunder was so overwhelmingly friendly that... It was just maybe a little too overwhelming for the first dog at times because she was more of a one-person dog. You know, mm-hmm. Thunder would just thought everybody was his best friend. <laughs> so um, after that, I um, I mentioned that I worked for State Parks. I took a job in 1997 as historic site manager at John Brown Farms Historic Site. Oh, in Lake Placid. Yeah, it's in North oh, Alba, right outside of Lake Placid. I love that place. Mm-hmm. Just describe that for us, that old farmhouse sitting up on the hill there. It's yeah, just it, beautiful. It's a magnificent place. It's um, the former farmstead and uh, home of the abolitionist, the radical abolitionist, John Brown. Many people don't realize he was 
buried in New York. That was his last residence. He um, came to New York in order to try to start a community of free black farmers before the Civil War. Sometimes this um, community is called Timbuktu. The site right now, it's it's run by, as I mentioned, New York State. There's a burial ground where John Brown is buried, as well as one of his sons, I believe, Owen, who was shot in, uh, he was killed in Kansas during the Troubles there, a bleeding Kansas. And there's also a common grave there where the uh, remains of the Harpers, I think nine of the Harpers Ferry Raiders were reinterred in uh I think toward the end of the 19th century, I think around 1896, they were brought from Harpers Ferry, Virginia, and uh, re-buried at at the site there. And And the farmhouse itself, it's just spare and simple, and you get kind of chills walking through it, I think. It's uh, maintained as it was at the time, I'm assuming, right? Well... He wasn't a wealthy man, and the farmhouse is actually a little more extravagant than when he was there. Uh I don't know how well you know that site, but when you first walk in, there's something called the parlor, which is kind of, you know, set up to be this middle-class Victorian uh, parlor. Actually, when John Brown was alive, that space was divided into three small rooms. Hmm. Okay, he had 20 children, so... He needed a lot of room. He needed, <laughs> he needed a lot of room, and it's not a very large house. Wow. So I'm just trying to segue back into your narrative. My guess is you ran into sledding dogs in Lake Placid because I know they, they run them on the lake there. Yes, there's a, um, a musher on the lake who uh, gave rides... His name is John Houghton. He runs a kennel called uh, Thunder Mountain Cannon. He lives in uh, Vermontville, and he would bring his team to uh, Mirror Lake every day and give rides. And he gave me my first sled dog ride, and from there I bought a sled. Wait, tell us about your first sled dog ride, because it must have been pivotal if it made you... Because millions of people take those sled dogs ride on Mirror Lake in the middle of Placid, and they don't go out and buy a sled. What what happened when you took that ride? Well, it was amazing, you know. it was. Um, I think he had about 12 dogs hooked up, and just... The, the power and the speed and the happiness of the dogs. And uh, it's something the dogs really like to do. It's funny because a lot of people think it's it's inhumane or cruel, but it's something the dogs, these type of dogs, really love to do. So it was just an amazing experience. So I, I bought my first sled, and as I had mentioned... Um, I'm going to interrupt you again, because I want to okay. just explore that idea. I have a dog that doesn't have a job, and I really feel... I mean, he was bred, he's a terrier, to do something. And do you, just like your philosophy on dogs, those noises you're hearing are, Mountie is, is literally mounting herself on the edge of the table, putting her head, which is beautiful, over the top. But do you have like a philosophy on that, that dogs that are bred to work really like to work? Yeah, I think they, they need a job to do to keep them out of trouble. You mentioned you have a terrier. Uh, the word... 
terrier actually comes from the Latin terre, which means earth, because they were uh, bred to dig into the earth and go after animals like uh, fox and badgers. So, you know, generally I think most dogs today are more or less bred to be pets, but they still retain some of that working instinct. And then you can see Mountie's getting a little hyper. She wants to say something into the microphone. Yeah, she's reaching right, and now she's licking your ear. Is that like her way of showing her affection? It's great. And now she's snuggling into your chest. Oh, gosh, she's cute. Okay, so you got your sled, and Mm -hmm. then how do you go about making your sled into something the dogs are going to pull? I mean, what happens? They had already been pulling a toboggan a little bit, at least uh, Thunder was. So there was, there's a cross-country ski trail at John Brown Farm, which is about, I think it's, it's about two and a half, three miles. So I would walk the trail every morning to look for blowdowns to make sure the trails were uh, clear. So are you a skier yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I was at that time. Yeah. But I, you know, then I got into the dog sledding, so I don't cross-country ski <laughs> anymore. So um, I just would hook up the dogs. Often there was so much snow that, you know, I'd have to break trail with snowshoes, and they would just pull the sled behind me. Huh. So you were doing the work. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, that's what, you know, today often mushers have to, if there's deep snow, they have to break, break the trail. trail. Yeah, with snowshoes. So we went, you know, dog sledding on that trail every every morning. And, you know, after a while, um, they learned the commands. And, you know, Thunder was always a natural puller. It was just the hard part was getting to go where you wanted to go and getting to stop when you wanted to go. So how do you do that? Well, it's just working with them, training them, drilling it into their head. It's almost like programming a computer. Once it's in there, it's in there. Yeah. But um, with me, it was it was mainly just going along as we go. You know, the way I trained a lot of my dogs, after I came back from Lake Placid, I... Uh, Returned to Albany. I I owned a townhouse in Albany, and I would walk my dogs along this two-mile route every morning. So by then, I had four dogs, so I'd have to give them commands. Yeah, I found this wonderful essay. You you had written this essay. It's posted online called "Lightning: A Birthday Present." Yeah. So this this is in that era when lightning was one of your dogs. Yeah, he was he was an abuse case. That yeah. Well, this essay is just so moving. If you could kind of walk us through it, it starts out how you find this dog who I mean I can't even list all the problems like bleeding ears, worms, just filth and. You were warned by a friend that the two males wouldn't get along. Somebody has to be top dog. And you just went ahead and did it anyway. He said, screw it. (laughs) (laughs) Jumped in and rescued Lightning. And they got along famously. Yeah, yeah, they were were good friends. They, you know, they never uh, had any problems with each other. As, uh, As they got older... You know, as I got too old for dog sledding, some of the younger dogs that came in got on their nerves a little bit, but those mm-hmm. two always got <laughs> pretty well. But, um, yeah, Lightning was an abuse case. I was at the Mohawk Hudson Shelter, and uh, 
He was just, you know, in pretty bad shape. So I, I took him and, and rehabilitated him, and he got along with everybody. So I, I let him stay. And, you know, I initially had planned to adopt him out, but he just passed away a few years ago. He lived to, he was uh, just about 15. Oh, yeah. That's so hard when a dog dies, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough. It's like losing a family member. Yeah. Well, so tell us about some of the... You've got you've named three different breeds, and I just looked up the American Kennel Club history of these, and I think you could probably make it a lot more colorful, but apparently they're ancient, ancient dogs that were really essential for survival in the very, very cold... Um, just could you kind of walk us through some of the history of those dogs? Yes. Uh, well, there's three breeds that are recognized by the American Kennel Club, but there's other breeds that are recognized in Canada and Greenland, which are also, you know, purebred, Arctic-type northern breeds. And there's some which are working toward Recognition. Uh, one that I mentioned when we were talking before is a Labrador Husky. Mm-hmm. As um, the Inuit moved from Alaska down into the north, then areas in North America um, like the Hudson Bay, Labrador. They basically traveled from west to east, and they brought their dogs with them. And over the years, they each developed different, you know, varieties of what was once called the Eskimo dog. In the 1880s, the American Kennel Club recognized the Eskimo dog as a purebred dog. These were the dogs of Canada, Alaska, and Greenland. I think the Peary expedition uh, brought a lot of these dogs to the lower 48. He had a big kennel in Maine, and I think that stimulated interest in the uh, in the breed, and eventually it won American Kennel Club recognition. Now we really divide these. Uh, we acknowledge that you know each regional breed was perhaps a little different. And we divide them up into the Canadian Eskimo dog or Canadian Inuit dog, the Greenland Husky or Greenland Inuit dog, the Labrador Husky, which there's a couple of uh, Métis Indians up in Labrador working toward getting um, these breeds recognized by... um, I guess the government of Canada or perhaps the Canadian Kennel Club. And, of course, in the United States, we have the Alaskan Malamute, which which is recognized by the American Kennel Club. And from Siberia, Siberian Husky, they were first brought to Alaska on a large scale in 1909 to run the old Alaskan sweepstakes. They were so much smaller than the Malamute-type dogs the Alaskans were using, what, the, what are the Alaskan sweepstakes? Oh, it was a 404-mile race from Nome to Candle and back. Oh, wow. It was the longest race in Alaska at the time. As a result of the gold rush, mushers wanted to trace the speed and strength of their dogs against each other. So competitions such as weight poles were organized and also uh, races. So um, the Siberians were brought to... Alaska in 1909. They were so much smaller than existing dogs there that they were called Siberian rats. Oh. But 
you know, they soon proved themselves to have more endurance and more speed than the bigger dogs. So pretty soon, a lot of people were running them, and they were eventually, you know, winning the race and doing quite well. So are the dogs of the Inuit people, the First Nation people, are they still an integral part of their life? Are they still used, you know, the way they had been traditionally, or is it more um, like their pets and... In Greenland, there's parts of Greenland where snowmobiles have been outlawed. So the dogs are pretty much used by the Greenland Inuit the same way they were used 4,000 years ago. Oh, my goodness. In Alaska and Canada, there's still, you know, some traditional Inuit hunters that are using the dogs the traditional way. But for the most part, I think snowmobiles and airplanes took over the jobs of the uh, sled dogs. That's how actually the Iditarod was formed. Sled dog teams became such a rarity, except for some sprint racing in Alaska, that a group of Alaskans led by uh, Joe Reddington wanted to form a great fate race to uh, – Recognized the part the sled dog had played in Alaskan history, and they came up with the Iditarod, an 1,150-mile race from Anchorage, Nome, which is held every year. Yeah, it's spectacular. Well, so you have done racing yourself, is that right? No, I've, I've no. never raced. I've never really had enough dogs to race. Um, generally in New York State, there's some four-dog races, but I've really have never had, you know, four young ones at the same time. At one time, I did put together, I think two years in a row, I did put together a four-dog team. I was going to have Lightning as the leader. He was a little older than the, you know, other ones, but he was still able to sled pretty uh, efficiently. We were going to enter the uh, race. It's called the Chapters Challenge at Allegheny State Park. And uh, there wasn't any snow twice, two years in a row. So that's <laughs> yeah, pretty we much went the extent some dry of my racing room. career. Well, tell us about, I know you're almost like an ambassador um, for these dogs, that you visit a lot of children's groups, schools, and like you're going to be doing at the Stone Fort. Tell us what, what's that, what that is like. Um, what kind of lessons do you teach the kids? Well, I've been doing it since 2000. I was looking for some um, land to move out of Albany because I I had four dogs and living in a townhouse was difficult. And I was looking at some land at Grafton because I liked that area. And uh, the real estate agency actually taught at the school. And every year they studied Iditarod. A lot of schools in New York State um, study the Iditarod every year. So I was invited to the school in 2000. That was my first class. And later on that year, I was invited to the Winterfest. And I'm still at Grafton State Park, and I I still visit those. And, you know, it's just a good experience. I talk a lot about history, but I also talk about a lot about dogs that have come into rescue and, you know, have had kind of a sad story. But through, you know, the effort of dedicated volunteers, they were able to be rehomed and move on to a better life. So, um... Yeah, it's it's a nice experience. I'd bring the dogs with me, and, you know, as you can see, my dogs are pretty friendly, and they're good with people, so people get a kick out of 
Well, it's almost like it's come full circle because it was that dog when you were in the hospital that got you interested, and now you're kind of sharing that same same thing with other people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it says on the presentation that you're going to be making at the Old Stone Fort that you're going to go over some of the tools that you use. Like, what what are... You've got a sled, but what are some of the other accoutrements that come with this? How I usually show some of the lines that are used to hook the dog up to the sled. I like to show the uh, people the dog booties, which are like little mittens for dogs. Oh, like I noticed my dog in the cold, his feet hurt a lot. What do they, when they're like pulling a sled, they wear these little booties? Yeah, if you look at racing like the Iditarod, you'll see dogs have little booties. There's fleece booties. And there's other materials. And they like don't chew them off or... Yeah. <laughs> just I've never to had too much dog. success with them. From what I understand, yeah. um, people will use tape to tape them on. My, the, I usually don't go further out than nine miles, so my dogs really don't need them. Yeah. Um, and the Iditarod, they use and they seem to stay on. I've never had too much success keeping on them. They, they look like little mittens. They have a Velcro crow strap on that just uh, fastens around the dog's wrist. And I also sew uh, snowshoes. Um, When I first started visiting schools, people asked, how do you take the cold? Don't forget, I started dog sledding on Lake Placid where, you know, I I would go out when it was 20 below. So I'd bring some of the clothing I would wear in Lake Placid. I usually dress up one of the school children in my big Arctic parker and my fur hat. <laughs> I bet you're very impressive. That, you yeah. know, so. <laughs> well, that the discussion of temperature made me wonder, and I was looking on the AKC side, because I wondered, you know, a lot of people, in fact, our photographer for the newspaper had a Siberian Husky, um, what they do in the summertime. Um, but what I read on the AKC site was they have two layers. of They have an undercoat and then an top coat that reflects the sun so they don't get overly no, they have, warm. It's a, like you said, it's a, it's a dual layer coat. So during the summer, their undercoat comes out. I call it their long underwear. <laughs> and, you know, you just have to brush it out. And they're, they're not bad at all. And they adapt. Even in Alaska, I guess it averages 70 degrees in July and August. So um, you know, just like with any dog, you got to make sure they have shade and water. Yeah. But they're no worse than, than any they're other okay dog. And then when it gets cold, it doesn't bother them. I've seen dogs that just hate the cold. They won't go out. And it could be, you know, 10, 20 below, and it won't it won't bother them at all. They, they want to be outside. So did you end up with a house in the country? After yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Yeah, I eventually moved to Middleburg, where I live now. I've been there for 15 years. I well, I know cabin. in the video, it starts with your dogs just bursting through this little, almost, like, trap door. <laughs> it's a dog <laughs> <Just> door. <laughs> running, just bounding out like they're so eager to go. Do you, is that door in your house? Do they live in the house with you? Yeah, yeah. There's only a couple now. Okay. Know, well, I mean, three. so what's that like living with those dogs? I mean, that's that's a lot of dog. I'm, my house feels fully occupied with one Airedale Terrier. I'm just wondering, like, how, how they... Oh. I guess I've been doing it for so long, it doesn't really, you know, phase me. Um, yeah. I 
just, you know, it's they're not that big of a dog, really. I mean, they're really? only about 50 yeah, pounds. Really? It looks so. pretty big. Yeah. Well, Maybe the fur makes them look bigger. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they have crates inside, and um, as you notice, there's the dog door so they can go outside into the kennel area. And there's a 60-foot play area for them, so they oh, keep wow. each other, you know, run around. Uh, playing and digging holes that keeps them busy. Siberians love to dig, so I I don't see it as any you know anything unusual. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it is. I, there's this old saying: if you've got one dog, you've got a dog. If you've got two dogs, you've got half a dog. If you've got three dogs, you've got no dog at all. Because they all kind of entertain each other. Is that sort of what happens? Uh, they... If you have three dogs, you have a team. That's the yeah. way I look at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, our time has gone really fast. I don't know if I've missed something important or if you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share um, about having dogs like this or any anything we've missed that's really important to you. Having northern breeds can be a lot of fun. It can be very rewarding. I think the problem is people often, you know, they're very striking, beautiful animals, and they're generally pretty friendly. I think often... Uh, People will fall in love with a puppy, and they're not really committed to channel this energy that they have um, into something positive. So I think before you do get a Siberian Husky or, or any breed of dog, try to do your research and try to evaluate if you really have the time that will be needed to, to take care of the dog properly. And if, if you want to get into sledding, there's a lot of people that will help you. Um, there's a lot of clubs out there, and it's a lot of fun, and the dogs enjoy doing it. Well, thank you, and thank you, Mountie. <laughs>